following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, let's dive into today's message. Uh, We are exploring our foundational values this season, thinking about how we can apply them in our next decade as a church. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary back in January, and we have been thinking for some time now, and we will continue to think for several more weeks about how we can live out these foundational values in our second decade as a church. And, And we've been looking at justice for the past few weeks, and today... I want to look at the book of Acts and see if we can find something about justice in there. Now, the book of Acts tells the story of the early church's formation, and so it can often be a very helpful text to turn to when we have questions about what the church might look like um, and what we might expect if the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst as it moved in the midst of the early Christian believers. And our text today comes from Acts, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 27 through 40. Uh, This is um, on page uh, 892 in these red Bibles, which are all around the sanctuary. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can certainly use one of these. If you don't own a Bible, you can certainly take one of these home with you. If you brought your own Bible, you're on your own finding the page, but I think you probably can do it. People who bring Bibles to church can generally find the book of Acts. Now, this is a really fascinating story in, in the Bible, but it's not one of the famous ones. Sometimes I introduce a text and say, this is a famous story in the Bible. Even if you don't know the Bible at all, you probably somehow heard this story somewhere or else, uh, somewhere or other. But uh, I don't think that's necessarily true of this particular story. Um, however, many of you studied this passage in your greenhouse group this past week. Now, greenhouses are our new small groups. They just started this past week. It's not too late to get involved. We'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but how many of you were in a greenhouse this past week and got a chance to look at Acts 8? 20, it's 26 through 40. Not, I said 27, but it's 26. Good, that's a lot of people. So lots of experts on this passage, people who already know everything about it and who could probably come and preach this sermon instead of me. Um, that's one of the reasons that we want to have these greenhouse groups. Uh, it's a lot about personal relationship and building faith in a more intimate setting, but of, of course we also want to engage with the Bible And we've decided to do that in a way that gets you a chance to look at the text and think about it and talk about it before I come and preach a sermon about it or whoever might be preaching that that on the Sunday that follows. So if you aren't in a greenhouse group yet and you'd like to be, um, please get involved and you'll hear some details again uh, later about that. (coughs) Let's jump in here. Uh, I want to read a couple of verses and then uh, set the stage just a little bit. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let me pause for a minute. So uh, this man is described as an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, uh, without going into too much graphic detail, if you don't know what a eunuch is, it's somebody whose genitals have been removed. Um, This is very common, particularly in royal courts. So a king uh, would have a a person come to attend to the king's harem, uh, but to avoid any... um, 
you know, any misfortune uh, that the king would not like, he took preventive measures, right? And uh, for that specific reason and for many others, uh, it was very common for royal officials and court attendants to be castrated, to be eunuchs. And uh, so much so that eventually the word eunuch came to mean just a court official, right? So, uh, but in this case, we can be pretty sure that it means what it says it means. Um, Now, he is likely a very rich man. He is the, the treasurer of what does it say? The Candace in the NRSV. It might just say Candace in one of the other translations. It's, uh, Candace or Kandake with Ks is, is ge- probably a, a general term for a queen of that region of northern Africa. So that's, that's indicating that he's probably rich. And what else indicates that he's probably very rich? What is he holding in his possession? A scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now this is not... Uh, 20th, 21st century America where you can just go up to, you know, the Christian bookstore or more likely at this point go to Amazon and order a Bible and have it, you know, for like 10 bucks. These scrolls took months and maybe even a year or more to make. They had to be copied meticulously with specific rules. And uh, it was not a small thing for this man to have a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So he has the entire scroll with him. Um, <coughs> an object of enormous value. So he's probably very wealthy. And he had gone to Jerusalem. This is probably a journey of weeks to get from where he lived in Ethiopia, um, which may not have been actually Ethiopia. As we understand, it might have been the Sudan or what is now the Sudan. It's a little bit hard to parse that out and probably doesn't matter for our story. But at any rate, it's a very long journey for him to get to Jerusalem. Uh, And he's gone there and now he's returning home. And let's pick up the passage there in verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip... Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And here's a quote. It happens to be from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Now, if you have your own Bible, you may have a verse in between here, which I'll get to in a second. But in the NRSV, it goes right to verse 38. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he was... As he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so before we dive in deeper here, let me make one observation that might set the stage for how the story plays out and for what it has to say to us today. Here's the observation that I would make. I think it's very, very, very likely that this eunuch undertook this trip of weeks from northern Africa to Jerusalem and that the trip ended up being a failure. Why did he go to Jerusalem? To worship. 
But the problem is, when he got to the temple in Jerusalem, he would have been prohibited from worshiping. First of all, he's a Gentile, so he could only have gone so far into the temple courts anyway. But as a eunuch, he wouldn't have been able to worship at all. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.1, most of you probably have this verse memorized, but just in case, I'm going to read it to you now. <clears throat> no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never actually seen this verse on an inspirational calendar at a Christian bookstore. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why. Uh, never had to memorize this one in Sunday school. I promise, parents, your kids are not reading that verse down in the other uh, end of the building. By the way, uh, had, he, had he been a Jew uh, and born to the, tr- the priestly tribe as a eunuch, he wouldn't have been able to become a priest. Uh, Leviticus 21.20, which I won't actually read to you. It's slightly more graphic about this matter, but you can go look it up yourself. Maybe use it for your devotional reading this week. Um, So there are prohibitions against eunuchs participating fully in the life of God and and in the acts of worship. But why? What is the underlying moral logic of these prohibitions? I think that's actually an important question to ask because as you know, we're about to see these prohibitions removed for the eunuch. And we might ask the question, just what is being overturned in this story? Well, let me read to you. Oh, man, I'm so sorry about that. We have to address this. There's a hardware issue, but for now, we'll just kind of fight through it. I'll read to you a book um, that speaks about eunuchs and uh, specifically responds to these Old Testament prohibitions uh, against them participating in worship. This is uh, James Brownson. He says, All of this is done not from a motive to oppress and exclude unfortunate people, but rather from a vision of the purity and perfection of the original creation, from a desire to replicate and recreate that original purity and perfection as much as possible in the community's life before God. Eunuchs were sexually ambiguous, incapable of transmitting life, and they provoked deep purity concerns over their lack of wholeness, completeness, and fittedness to their proper type and kind. They stood outside of the purposes and categories of the original creation. Yet Philip is directed specifically by the angel of the Lord to encounter this man. By the way, many of these same prohibitions would apply to people who had uh, disabilities or skin rashes or any kind of what would have been understood to be an imperfection in their body. Eunuchs stood outside of the purposes and categories of the original creation. That's, that's the underlying moral logic. That's why they were prohibited from worship because they, they seemed to violate the picture of perfection that Hebrew worshipers were trying to attain and recreate in their acts of worship. So here's this man, a eunuch, who has very likely driven his chariot and maybe a caravan of chariots chariots, up to Jerusalem to be turned away from worship at the temple gates. And yet, on his way back, he is still reading the Hebrew Scriptures. He is still seeking to understand God and God's world. 
that's pretty significant. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody who's been told for one reason or another by the religious authorities, you, you know, you're, it's really not the place for you. Somebody who's been told, no, 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 you, you, know, you can't come in here like that. Somebody who's been told, no, you're the type of person who is outside of God's desires for the creation, for the created order. We're going to have to, I don't know, maybe listen to the podcast or something. You can't, you can't be here right now. Somebody who's experienced something like that and yet, and yet, they are still seeking God. They're still exploring and trying to understand the world that God made. They're still reading the Bible and trying to apply it to their life. Do you know anybody like that? Are you maybe somebody like that yourself who has been shut out from worship and yet you still want to find your way to God? This story has good news for you. So in his seeking, he's reading from what? The, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as I mentioned earlier, it's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Um, the passage starts, uh, as quoted in the text, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, right? Now, just as an aside, if you were to go back in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, you would notice that the wording is uh, noticeably different from what's quoted in the book of Acts. Uh, and it has nothing to do with my sermon, but just so you know what's going on there, it's important that you kind of understand this sort of thing. Uh, the, the book of Isaiah, as you have it in your Bible, is translated into English from the Hebrew. The book of Isaiah that the eunuch was reading, and which all the apostles would have read, was translated into Greek from the Hebrew. And so what you have in Acts 8 is a translation into English of a passage in Greek, which had been translated into Greek from Hebrew. Does that make sense? Are you following that? path, right? It's called the uh, Septuagint. Um, Actually, a really fun exercise to look at some of the language differences between the Hebrew and Greek in the Old Testament. If you're a a language nerd, anyway, uh, that can be fun. So he's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, and the eunuch has a question. What is the question that he has? Who is the prophet talking about in this passage? Is he talking about himself, or is he talking about somebody else? Perhaps the eunuch saw himself in the passage when he read that line that said, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Having just been turned away at the temple, he might have felt that one a little bit closer to home. But of course, the prophet, we believe, I believe, I hope you believe, was speaking about Jesus. And Philip sees this as a clear opportunity to tell the eunuch about the gospel. And so, Acts 8 says... Starting with this scripture, that is Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He proclaimed the good news about Jesus. Now remember, it's almost certain that this is the only scroll that the uh, eunuch owned. These are super duper expensive things, right? He's not going to be able to say, oh, when you're done reading Isaiah, you should also look at what Jeremiah has to say. And by the way, let's go back to look at Deuteronomy. Maybe not Deuteronomy. Let's go back and look at a different book and see how it all works together. There was no opportunity to do that. He had the scroll of Isaiah and that's it. Starting with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Now, if he started at chapter 53, how far do you suppose they got in this conversation? Do you think they might have gotten one chapter ahead? 
maybe two chapters ahead? Do you think it's possible that they made it three chapters ahead to to chapter 56 in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? If they made it to chapter 56, what do you suppose they might have found? Well, if they made it to 56 verses 3 through 7, they would have read something like this. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, (laughs) hear this, that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Yes, that is the proper response to that passage. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's almost like when Jesus said, you have heard it said, no one who's had his penis cut off shall make it into the house of the Lord. But I say to you, (laughs) my house shall be a prayer for all peoples and you will have a name that will never be cut off. If you think the Bible is boring, you're not reading closely enough. (laughs) Can you imagine the eunuch's joy at hearing this passage? Knowing what Isaiah 53 meant was, was great. But getting to Isaiah 56 and hearing, wow, the prophet, it's almost like he knew I would be here. And so then they come to the water and he says, how amazing it is it that he says this. Look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Now here's the verse that I hinted at in a, sec- a second ago. Uh, that was verse 36. And I read to you right to verse 38 where they jump out of the chariot and do the baptism. But if you have the NIV or maybe some other different translations, you have verse 37 in there. It's omitted in the, other tra- in the translation that we use. What Philip answers him in verse 37 is, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And then the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then they go on and they both get in the water and Philip baptizes him. Now this verse is not in the NRSV translation because it's not actually present in the earliest manuscripts of this text that we have. So all the little pieces of paper with, with fragments and sections of the book of Acts on it, we, if we were to put them in line from oldest to newest, uh, the older ones we would think were a little bit more reliable, right? That's just basic textual criticism used for any kind of piece of literature from the ancient world. Right? The oldest ones don't have this first. So what is actually quite likely is that this extra little question and answer thing 
Uh, this extra little question and answer thing was added later by the early church as a reinforcement of the baptism liturgy, which they had then developed. In the early church, when you were baptized, you would be asked a question like, do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Something along those lines. And then the, the baptizee would respond with, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Something along those lines. Right? <clears throat> this eventually, by the way, became the Apostles' Creed. The baptismal uh, rite, the liturgy of baptism, uh, because it was so central in expressing the very core of the faith, became uh, an important statement of faith that was used in other contexts of Christian worship. Right? So I actually think it's unlikely that verse 37 was in the original text. It's in dispute. This is one of the realities of dealing with an ancient text, and we should always remember that there are going to be ambiguities. But these ambiguities do not, dis, they do not diminish the value, the inspiration, or the authority of the Bible, in my opinion, unless you impose unreasonable expectations on what is a very ancient text. Does that make sense? These little things, if we pretend they're not there, somebody from some, uh, you know, Atheist website is going to list it up and you're going to read it and you're going to go, oh my goodness, they've been lying to me my whole life, right? And you could be forgiven for that. If nobody ever said to you what I just said to you, yeah, it's, we're not sure, but it's okay. As long as you don't expect the Bible to do something it's not supposed to do. If nobody's ever said that to you, you might have your faith shaken to the core and I would hate to have that happen when you encounter these little weird ambiguities and contradictions and things, okay? That's a separate sermon. Um, but let's say for now, though, that Philip did answer him as verse 37 describes. He did say to him, what? Somebody read it, verse 37. You, oh, you don't have it, I forgot. It was on the screen, though. What did he say? If you believe with all your heart, you may. Let's, let's pretend um, that that actually is what he said. This this answer to the question, what's to prevent me from being baptized, is significant as much for what Philip does not say as for what he does. Now notice, he does not say to this Gentile person, who, sorry, we haven't gotten to Acts 15 yet, <laughs> where the Gentiles are welcomed into the Christian church. You are not yet allowed to become a Christian unless you become a Jew first, and that's kind of a long process, and it involves, well, you don't have to worry about that part, but, you know, um, you're not ready yet. He does not say that. He does not quote Deuteronomy 23, 1, which I will spare you uh, the indignity of hearing again, saying, sorry, I don't like this rule if it were up to me. Boy, I wish I could affirm your role in your participation in the life of the church, but I just have this scripture. I can't let, I can't let it happen. He does not say that. He does not say, sorry, Eunuch, you are sexually ambiguous and incapable of transmitting life and you stand outside the purposes and categories of the original creation, which is really what we're trying to recreate in our acts of worship after all. And so uh, we'll have to come up with something else that you can do, but mm, baptism, probably not. He doesn't say any of those things. And do you know why? Because the eunuch is not the only one who's being converted in this experience. Philip is having his own conversion as they're speaking. And when he's asked the question, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Philip doesn't have an answer. Except, I don't know, do you believe? <laughs> if you do, then sure. Let's get in the water. 
What he's beginning to understand, Philip, is that, the, that, that God's kingdom is not about pruning away every undesirable person and thing. It's not about removing from the equation anything that doesn't look perfect like the original creation. It's not about trying to come up with this uh, uh, sanitized state for religious practice. It's about Jesus ushering in a new creation. And in that new creation, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There, there is no longer male and female. So this eunuch who finds himself in between, anatomically speaking, wow. In God's new creation, in the kingdom that Jesus ushers in, those distinctions and those barriers and those dividing walls are broken down. And this, I think, will be crucial for us to understand as we explore how to express our foundational value of justice in our next decade. We might just need a conversion experience of our own. You see, justice is not just about helping the poor. It's not just about creation care. It's not just about racial reconciliation. It's not just about working to bring down inequitable systems. Justice is all of those things, but it's not only those things. At a base level, justice is about making sure that everyone is welcomed and included at God's table. God's justice means everyone is invited to the party. God's justice means everyone is invited to the party. Now, whether they accept that invitation or what happens after they do, we could talk about. But God's justice means that every person is invited to the party. Racial and ethnic minorities, gender and sexual minorities, anybody whose body doesn't conform to our expectations or our convenience, Foreigners of all kinds, everybody is invited to the party in God's just world. For God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. I don't usually do this, but would you say that with me? God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You almost have it. God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And if we're going to be doing the work of justice, guess what? We don't get to tell people that they're not welcome in the kingdom of God. We don't get to exclude people because we don't think they belong, because Jesus has said that they do. And whatever Jesus wants to do in their lives once they're here at the party, well, that's his business and theirs, not ours. Do you know, uh, all of you do, maybe just, just, so, just in case one or two don't, that uh, the lectionary reading that is paired with this story in Acts, the year that it comes up in the lectionary, uh, Easter 5b, you all know Easter 5b, right, in the lectionary, you have that memorized? The, uh, one of the other readings is 1 John 4, 
7 through 21. I read a few sentences of that uh, at the call to worship this morning. We sang some of the words. I don't know how that happened because I didn't tell Anna or anybody that I was going to read 1 John 4. <laughs> um, but here's what it says, and I'm going to just like fly through some of it. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters. Now here's the thing. This is going to be hard work. Even for those of you in the room who are nodding your heads and coming along with me every step of the way, this is going to be hard work for us. If it was easy, John wouldn't have had to write a letter about it, by the way. Do you think it was easy for the leaders of the early church? Or forget the leaders, how about just the people in the pews? I mean, they didn't have pews in the early church, but I mean, neither do we, right? Do you think it was easy for them to suddenly start accepting eunuchs into worship after generations and generations and generations of them not being allowed? Do you think it was easy for them to start accepting uh, women into roles of what appeared to be leadership after generations and generations and generations of not happening? Do you think it was easy for them to forget Deuteronomy 23.1? You're never going to forget Deuteronomy 23.1 and you've only heard it a few times. But God's justice means that everyone is invited to the party. And I believe with all my heart that one of the works of justice that we are going to be called to do in our second decade is the work of inclusion. Do you think it will be easy for us to welcome and include into our fellowship all the people that God might bring our way? Do you think it will be easy for us to, for example, consider making improvements to our facility so that those in wheelchairs can have more complete access to all the spaces that those of us who, who walk have access to? Do you think racial reconciliation is going to be easy? Do you think trying to make our community more diverse as regards ethnicity, it would be an easy thing to do? Do you think it would be easy for us to include gay and lesbian couples who come in to our church with children? Do you think it would be perfectly natural and simple to include, include people who are transgender when they come to Artisan? In some of these cases, we'll have our own scriptural challenges to work through, and we will need to do that work together. And I want to say to you, it's, it's okay if the scriptural stuff is, is challenging to you and, and you feel like it's, uh, you really want to work toward more inclusion in some cases, but you're not sure if you can be faithful to the Bible and do that, certain parts of it. We need to work through that together as a community, and we will. But in the meantime, what is absolutely crystal clear is that we don't get to make determination about who can be here and who can't. That is not our job to do. Particularly when you see the work of the Spirit in someone's life already. Justice is about making sure that everyone is included and welcomed at God's table. And I think we are called to do a better job with that in our next decade. Let's pray.
I'm thankful, God, for this wonderful story, which has been so inspiring and challenging to me as I've studied it. And uh, others have told me that that is the case for them as well. We pray that in this story of the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion and Philip's conversion, that we would see something of the work that your Spirit wants to do in our midst over 2,000 years later. Help us to be bold in our act of welcoming and including all people to your party, to your table. Helping, help us to be faithful not only to Scripture, but to the ongoing story of your work and your Son's work through the Holy Spirit in our midst. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the work of justice is ensuring that everybody is welcome to the table, and it's my privilege now to welcome all of you to this table. You may have been told at one time or another that you are not good enough to take communion or to be in church at all. I'm telling you that whoever told you that was wrong. This is the table of the Lord, not the table of the church, not the table of Scott. It is Jesus who extends his invitation to you to come and participate and receive his body and blood into your own as food for your souls, as an impartation of his grace to sustain you in your faith wherever you may be. And if, you, if you say, I'm not a person of faith, that's okay. You don't have to take communion here. There's no rules and nobody will look at you funny. But if you, if you want to, and you're not sure if you should, let me tell you, you should. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. Parents, if you'd like to go and collect your children and bring them down here uh, to take communion with you, that would be wonderful. They are welcome as well. Um, I would encourage you to respond however you would like, however the Spirit may be speaking to you. If you'd like personalized prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here that will be happy to pray with you this morning. Uh, our table is open. Let's continue to worship him together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.